Uh, we're in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, Genesis chapter 22. <clears throat> Isaiah 22 would be great to study too, but we're in Genesis 22. And we uh, did not finish this at all, but let me, I'm not sure everyone was here last week, either on the streaming it or here, but um, this is in some ways, chapter 22 of the book of Genesis is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It certainly is one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis, because here God asks Abraham to offer his covenant son back to him. And if we, I'm not going to read all of this, but if you look at those first uh, six or seven verses, God declares what he wants him to do. And the text in verse one uses a very important verb. God tested Abraham. This is to be regarded as you and I study it, and as he processed it, it's a test. And I can't remember if I asked this question rhetorically last week, but I'll ask it here. A test of what? His faith. Of his faith. This is a test of his faith. Does he trust God? Does he trust God's promises? Because remember, faith is, faith is a response to God that leads to worship, but faith also is an acceptance and a belief in his promises, that he's going to keep his promises to you. That's one of the extraordinary things about these patriarchs. Uh, they believe what God promised, and not one of them saw those promises fulfilled. They did not live to see that three-part promise of land, seed, and blessing fulfilled. Jacob gets closest, but Jacob dies in Egypt. <laughs> He's buried back in the, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway. So what he is asked to do, what Abraham is asked to do by God, is take his son to Mount Moriah. And what I did, and you have a copy of that, and Glenn has put it up as a slide for those of you that are online. What you see here is a, uh, I'm looking at this first one, that's the first one I'm looking at. What you see here, and it's, you can see the outline of the yellow. You can see right in the middle is Mount Moriah. Now, before we look at the second slide, what I want you to observe is a couple of things. This is a, a fantastic topographical map of Jerusalem. This is what Jerusalem looks like. If you take away all the buildings and everything else is on in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is on a, in a very high, almost like a plateau. On the right, on the east side of your map, is the Mount of Olives, about 2,600 feet above sea level. Then you have that mass that's very, very deep. Today, it's called the Kidron Valley. In the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Okay? And then you will see, uh, again, about in the center of the map is Mount Moriah, which is 2,400 uh, feet or so. And a little bit to the west of Mount Moriah is the Trophimim Valley. And then to the very farthest west is the Valley of Hinnom, which then circles down around and meshes with the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kidron Valley. Now, that is really important because that, that is, I mean, I've been in Jerusalem many times in my life. You can see all three of those valleys very clearly, even with all the buildings. Those valleys are still very clearly marked out. And Mount Moriah, so I'd like you to now look at the other map that you have. Mount Moriah is the map on which the temple is built, and that's what this map is. Now, the map that I, I've shown you here, or that is, is available to you, is a map that reflects what Jerusalem looked at at the time of Jesus. And I, I wanted to do that because where Isaac offers, excuse me, where Abraham offers Isaac is basically where the Temple Mount is. 
Mount Moriah. And if you know, I don't know if you remember all this from the Old Testament, but David bought this plot of land from Aruna. It's in the very last chapter of Second Chronicles. He bought it from him, and he wanted to build the temple there, but he couldn't. Solomon would build it. What David did do is he moved the, the Ark of the Covenant there. He moved the tabernacle there. And that would remain there until um, um, Solomon builds the temple. Now, um, what I want you to notice about this map, again, of, of, uh, of the time of Jesus, you can see the Mount of Olives, which you can see correspond to the first one you looked at. Then you see the Kidron Valley. That's what it's called today. In the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And then you see the Hinnom. You can see it here, the Hinnom Valley. You can see that here. And the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley meet the very, very southern tip of, of this very large, rugged mountain that becomes known as Mount Moriah. And so it's, it's not a coincidence that God, 2,000 years before Jesus shows up, has Abraham offer Isaac on the same spot where 2,000 years ago, God the Father is going to offer his son. Now, I preached on this many way, many times, so I'm going to give one of the key lines that I use in the sermon. In 2,000 years before Jesus showed up, a father and a son walked up to Mount Moriah, and God provided a substitute for that son. 2,000 years later, another father and son walked up this mountain, but that son was the substitute. Got it? <laughs> So that's not a coincidence that God did this. And so any Jew today, and it's just remarkable how Satan has blinded the Jewish people, but any Jew today that's intellectually honest can see the connection here. It's so clear. And so what Abraham does here is it is a test of his faith, but it also is an illustration that it is by substitution that God's wrath is covered, is appeased, is dealt with. It is by sacrifice that fellowship is established. It is by sacrifice that sin is atoned for. I mean, there are all the things you can say about the Old Testament sacrifice and about, and about what Jesus does on the same area. He's sacrificed on the same mountain. And so it's just a remarkable illustration of God has a plan, and God is working that plan with meticulous detail. So I wanted you to see those two maps, and, you know, I hope you'll save them forever. It'll be part of your ticket into heaven. If you don't have it, <laughs> Peter's not going to let you be. Get in. Just kidding. I, I didn't think that was a ticket. Okay. Um, thank you for clarifying. Um, you know, I'm going to promises that, that were made by God Abraham are the same promises in essence because of that price that he's making to us today. Would you say? I mean, it well, seems like to me that I mean it's not in the same format, but it's the same promise that's contained in this book. I don't know if you believe it. Yeah. Well, the, at one level, I agree. At another level, I'm, I'm, I want to push back just a little because the, I mean, the promise God made to Abraham was land, seed, and blessing. He's not making that promise to you. The blessing part, 
that land is the land of Israel that is very clearly spelled out in chapter 17. Uh, you know, the seed is the, the Jewish people, the millions of Jews throughout the history of the world. But that third blessing is the blessing of salvation. And that then becomes very clear in the New Testament. Paul makes a lot of that. So in that sense, yes. But, but Abraham and Gen when we studied Genesis 15, that was such an important verse. Genesis 15, 6, it tells us Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you want to use our language today, that's when Abraham was saved. <laughs> I mean, that's when his relationship was now a relationship based on faith. He trusted God and God says you are now righteous. And Paul really makes a big deal of that in Romans 4. But anyway, so God is, God is saying to every human being, I have provided a substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. That's the path to eternity. Do you believe that? Or do you reject that? And that if you distill it down to the simplest, simplest statement, that, but every human being on planet Earth has to process that. What am I doing with what God has revealed to me? And uh, Abraham had responded in faith to God. He has grown in his faith and trust in God. He saw God fulfill, after 25 years of waiting, the promised son. Now God says, give me your son back. But as we were starting to, to focus on last week, if you connect this chapter with Hebrews 11, verse 19, Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would bring him back to life. Which I, every time I study Hebrews 11 and I come across that verse, that's just staggering to me. A staggering degree of faith. By that time, by this time in his life, in Abraham's life, he was so committed to God and so trusting of God that even if he did follow through with sacrificing his son, his faith included the content that God's going to bring him back to life. And he said to the servants, we will come back and join you wait here. We will come back and join you later. So Abraham is passing this test. And that is why the, 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 the rest of Scripture, and then Paul does this quite a bit in several of his letters, Abraham becomes a paradigm of faith for us. Because he doesn't have the same amount of revelation as you do. You have far more revelation of God, <laughs> his plan, what he's like, than Abraham did. And so that, that he becomes a paradigm of faith is one of the, the key themes that resonates through Scripture. And that's why Paul even says, we who put our faith in Christ are children of Abraham. And we will participate in the new covenant blessings starting now and through all eternity, as, as you know. All right. Yeah, um, that's, that's a really good what you said there. I'm glad you pointed that out, that Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and the boy, and I and the boy will go over there, worship, and come back again to you. That's right. You know, if you really think about that sentence, I mean, he really did have the faith that, Oh, absolutely. I was going to come back down off that mountain with him. Yeah, yeah. Oh. He really, he, Abraham is a hero of faith. Uh, he's, he's, he's a remarkable individual. 
And as we've been studying, he goes through the ups and downs. He, at times when he stumbles and falls, but he remains a paradigm of faith. It's extraordinary. I think he's an extraordinary example of faith, what he believed God would do. Let me pick up then, if there are no other questions, uh, okay, and pick up in verse 9. When they came to the place, we covered some, but I want to pick up there to make get the whole uh, narrative completed. When it came to a place which God had told him, that would be Mount Moriah, very close to Golgotha. Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in, and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now I want to stop there for a minute. Can you draw any inference about the faith of Isaac? Well, he had it going on, too. Jesus on the wood, on the cross. Yeah. There's a parallel there between the father putting his son on the cross, father putting his son on the wood. Woody, what were you saying? No, I, I was just saying that the son had it going on, the faith, you know, the same as Abraham. Well, that yeah, I think so, Woody. I mean, there's a parallel between the father and the son 2,000 years from now from this event. But you have to remember something here. Abraham is approximately 115 years old here. Remember when Isaac was born, he was 100, so he's, he's now a teenager, early teens. We don't know exactly, but around 13, 14, 15 years. But he's 113, 114, 115. Isaac's 13 or 14 or 15. What is the trust between Isaac and Abraham? There has to be trust here. There, there has to be a, a remarkable, from this son's perspective, I, I've always thought about two things as I study this. Isaac, and I think of Sarah. You know, they left a three-day journey north. They're going to be up there when they're going to come back. She's, it's going to be at least a week or more till she hears what's happened. So, I mean, just think of the test it is for her. But Isaac, I mean, I don't know about you, but I try to think of even now, if I, when I'm trying to play with my grandkids, and I have to deal with some of the things there, I have to lift them up. You know, a day with my grandkids, I am absolutely exhausted, worn out, ready for bed, but I can't because i got to start the next day with them. Really looking forward to it. It's a fantastic time. But the, the, the 115 years old versus the 15-year-old, this, this boy, this teenager Isaac, had to really trust his dad, too. He had to believe that whatever was going on here, so there, I don't know how we can draw any inference about the quality or content of his faith in God. I'm assuming he had some of that, or I'm assuming it's growing, but he really had to trust his dad here. Because he is laying him on the altar. I was going to say, you almost wonder what you said earlier about Abraham's age, if Isaac had to get himself up on there. I mean, did Abraham really pick him up? I mean, maybe he did. It's bound his son and laid him on the altar. But you are right. I mean, if the son resists it. So it's just, it's, it's just, the text is totally silent on this. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. By this, I mean, Isaac, his faith, his trust, or whatever. It's just that there is a remarkable 
is a remarkable inference we can draw here, this relationship between Isaac and his dad. Because then the next verse, and Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to, the ESV translates it, slaughter his son. That's a strong translation of that word. That's probably the right way to translate it. Meaning he's going to use the same procedure with his son as if he would, if that were an animal on that altar, he would slit the throat of the animal. So you have this astonishing, I mean, to me, to envision this, to try to picture this, it's almost impossible to imagine this. A father about to kill his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, we've talked about that before, that is a theophany. The definite article, the angel of the Lord. This is an appearance of God. Called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. The same thing he said in response in verse 7. Here I am. That Whenever you see, you see that in a number of the heroes of the Old Testament. You see that in Moses. Moses will say that. Gideon will say that. It's a, it's a response of, okay, Lord, I'm available. What do you want? It's not, a, it's not a response of resistance. It's not a response of rebellion or, or questioning. Okay, Lord. Arms are open. What do you want? I'm available. It's, and that's, you, you got to really note that. This is a response of faith. This is a, a, a response of confident trust. Here I am, Lord. What do you want? I'm ready. What, what do you want me to do? It's not resistance. It's not rebellion. It's, it's the whole attitude of faith. You have the faith, but the attitude of faith is how am I responding to what God is doing in my life? Whether I understand it, whether I accept it, whether I like it, whether I want it. Okay, Lord, what do you want? I'm ready. I just, I, I want to draw attention to that. Verse 12. He said that he would be the angel of the Lord. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Four, you could translate that because now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withhold your son, your only son from me. And that, I've said this before, but I will repeat it. When you see the word fear, and the subject, the object is God, but the subject is you, the person. Fear, when it's in a context of faith, when it's in a context of trust, is worship. So, I mean, it is, and it's always that, that word in both the Greek, there are three words in Hebrew language that we translate fear. One major word in the Greek language we translate fear, but they can have that meaning of towering and oh, oh, or it can mean a little bit of that, but it's awe and reverence and worship. And that's the way I would understand this. You fear not that you are cowering. He's going he's gonna to wipe you out if you don't do it. That's not what that word means here. It's a worshipful, reverential, awe-inspired, I really trust you. I'm thinking about Abraham Sarah. What about I'm Sarah? sorry? 
What about Sarah? I imagine if I was trying to take my one my son somewhere like that and do that, what what Abraham was supposed to do, my wife wouldn't have let me out of the house. <laughs> uh, you're right, and that's what we were coming. Sarah, this I think is another area of our speculating a little bit because Sarah is going to wait quite a long time before she hears the news or what happened. Yeah, and for her, she also has to trust the Lord to, as you really said, to let them out of house in the morning. <laughs> Jim, and it says your only son, so obviously they must just be your only covenant son. Covenant son. That's exactly the right. That's the right move. Mm -hmm. This is your covenant son. Because he has other sons, but this is your covenant son. This is one you waited 25 years for. In verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram, offered it as burnt offering instead of his son. In place of his son. As a substitute for his son. Are you getting the language there? Because that's going to be very important 2,000 years from now. By now, I mean this, this event here. Because that son... Jesus, the Son of God, will be the sacrifice. He will be the substitute. And that substitute, and this is the book of Hebrews, just elaborates on this. But that substitute is he takes the wrath of God. He takes our judgment. His, his sacrifice atones. The word atone means cover permanently our sin. I mean, all of those fantastic, awesome things are in, contained in instead of a substitute for. Now, I'm going to give you the big flowery language theologians here. This is a penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement. It'll be on the quiz next week. Don't forget <laughs> it. It's a penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement. Penal? takes the punishment. Vicarious. He is totally in your place. You should be there, but he's there. And he's that substitute for atonement. God once for all and forever atones for your sin. Now, what happened here is this is a one-time atonement, but he's going to have to sacrifice again. This is the only time Abraham will offer burnt offerings to God. Extraordinary thing here is it's in the substitute of his son. Then, then Abraham, and I really, I want you to miss, don't miss this, in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. The Hebrew is Yahweh Jireh, J-I-R-E-H, Yahweh Jireh. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, when um, and Moses you know, wrote uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, so when Moses says this to this day, on the mount of the Lord, that's a problem. We, we talk like that. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, that is really important when you start thinking about it in the whole revelation of Scripture. On the Mount of the Lord, Mount Moriah is the Mount of the Lord. 
it will be provided. God will provide for us. Now, because of the context of this and because how it's developed throughout the scriptures, this is the provision of redemption. This is the provision of salvation. It's on the Mount of the Lord. Mount Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary. And so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, oh my goodness, it's a wonderful summary of biblical theology. Abraham calls this place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Jarrah. And then there's a little proverb, the Mount of the Lord shall be provided. Now, and when Moses would have used that, however he would have used it, it was a proverb that the people of Israel used you know, you know, hundreds of years later. I don't know if they completely understood all that that meant. You and I looking back, really. I, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. When I was in seminary in graduate school in Texas, I had a very close friend. Um, he was a little bit older, and he had three children. Uh, you know, it was a really remarkable thing going to graduate school and you know, being able to financially do it and all that. It was really, really incredible thing to see God provide for them. But it was hard. Uh, most of us, that's a struggle to be in graduate school and be married and all that. But he really had to because he had three kids. And so he, he did something with his family I thought was really cool. Every year, as they would begin the new year, January the 1st, they would have a little box, oh, maybe twice the size of that, that Kleenex box. It was out of wood and had a slot in the top. <clears throat> and what they would do is every time they had a need, and I, I don't mean, you know, I'm talking about a significant need in terms of financial needs. There, were, there was a health issue with one of their kids. I mean, all of the things that you would expect, they would put it in the box. You know what he called the box? The Jehovah Jireh box. God will provide. And so they would put them in, and then as God would answer the prayer or would provide, if it was a financial gift or some major thing that, that something happened to one of the children, all the things they prayed about, and as they saw God answer it, they would put the answer in a slip of paper. How God answered in a slip of paper? You know, a whole year, 365 days, you're going to forget some of that stuff. So then at the end of the year, between the Christmas and New Year's break, he would, as a family, they would all open the box and review. This is how God provided us. I, I used to think it was so cool, but what was he doing for his children? Building their faith. Building their faith. You see, we ask God to provide. We put it in the box as a reminder. This is what we ask God to do. And then, you know, Two days later, four months later, whatever, God answered. We put the answer, recorded the answer, put it in the box. And I, I, Peggy and I, we, we did a little bit of that with our kids. But just a, a tremendous way for us as mature adults who've walked with the Lord for a while, but also for a little kid, learning what is faith. There's a tactile, measurable demonstration of faith. God does provide. Yahweh Jireh. So anyway, I always, I have a little, when I lead my tours, when we're at Beersheba, and we're standing in front of the tamarisk tree there, the well of, of Abraham, and there's a big lean-to, and you're out of the sun, and I always preach on this, I preach on this passage. 
Uh, it's a little devotional. It's preaching, but it's about 30 minutes. But And I always tell that story because that is just that's such a tremendous thing about, about Abraham. He really trusted the Lord. And even if he would take the life of his son, he believed God would bring him back. But he saw God provide an animal as a substitute for his son. 2,000 years later, that son would be the substitute. Isn't that a great mm -hmm. sentence? Isn't it amazing how he evolved into that? As at one time, he would tell people his wife was his sister. Yeah, and yeah. Lied and misrepresented things. Yeah, agreed to do what Sarah had said, take Hagar and created Ishmael issues. I, yeah. But it's just, but you know, it's important for you and me to not necessarily see ourselves as Abraham, but see ourselves in the same sense. We're all in the process of growing in our faith. You see that with Abraham, we've studied his life now for quite a few weeks. He's growing in his faith. I mean, he really is. And here we're at, you know, we're getting pretty near the end of his life now. But he is. It's a paradigm of faith. I mean, to do, to trust God for this, that's amazing faith. That's why he is a paradigm. Now, let's conclude this then with verse 19, uh, uh, verse uh, 13 through 19. Uh, continuing then, verse 15, and the angel of the Lord, I mean, there again, I'm not going to kind of, that's a theophany and so called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn. <laughs> yeah, that was a visual effect. That's God. God's calling here. This is God calling by myself. I have sworn. And uh, that, don't miss that. This is a divine oath. This is God making a vow. You got that? I mean, this is a this is a divine oath. God is making an oath here, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and sand of the seashore. Your offspring shall suppress, possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I want you to note something there. You shall possess the gate of his enemies or their enemies. A little bit of an issue there with the Hebrew. But that's stating, that's stating the land promise a little bit differently. That you, your, 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 your successors, your, your, out of your loins, the people that are going, you, you're giving birth to a whole nation that's going to be as nervous as the stars of the sky. He said that many times. And you, all the nation, are going to be like, he said that many times. But in place of the land promise, he says, you shall possess, your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. So these people that are going to be as nervous as the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore, they will get the land promise, but they will possess the gate of their enemy. Man, the only way that makes sense, if it's messianic, 
The only way that makes sense is if it's talking about the Messiah who inherit the right to rule planet Earth, which the Father promised to the Son in Psalm 2-7, which the Father promised to the Son in Psalm 110, 1 and 2. Over and over and over through the New Testament, Jesus is getting that promise from the Father. So that the Jewish people will be as numerous as the sky saying on the seashore will possess the gates of their enemies. They will triumph over all their enemies. Moabites, Edomites, Ammonites, Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. I mean, you just saw all the history. Of the only way that makes sense is to possess the gates of all the enemies in Messiah's kingdom. When you will rule and reign with Christ, when you will rule and reign with Messiah. So he's notching, I hope you're following me here, he's notching up this promise of land to a much greater degree of intensity. You will victoriously triumph over all your enemies. It didn't happen when they faced the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. They lost or taken into captivity. The kingdom of Judah and the South didn't happen to them in 586 BC. They were overcome by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into captivity. It didn't happen when Alexander the Great, they'd come back under the Persian Empire. It didn't happen when Alexander the Great and his armies invaded him. They became part of the Greek Empire. It didn't happen in 39 BC when Pompey came in and conquered him. No. When are they going to possess the gate of the enemy? Under Jesus, under their Messiah, under their Davidic king. You follow what I'm saying? What, and this, when, I, I don't know how much Abraham would have really understood this. But what is really happening here, it's the intersection of the Abrahamic covenant and the coming Davidic covenant. It's the intersection of those two. Because the only way they will possess the gates of the enemies is under some kind of messianic ruler, some kind of messianic, some anointed leader. Because they sure didn't do it during Abraham's time. He only has a little tiny possession he bought, buys from a bunch of Hittites, and he makes a cave uh, in the cave there, or his grave, for his wife, or him, or his children, and grandchildren, and so on. That's the only land he owns, a little tiny speck of land. He never sees this. But this is a phenomenal promise. They shall possess the gates of their enemies. And gate, that's the gatehouse in every one of the major cities in the world. So, I mean, it's just an awesome promise. And I, what frustrates me is I don't understand why everyone said, hold it, Lord. I want you to explain the second part of that. I don't quite get that. I got the land. I got it. As you told us, you showed me it. You took me up to the mount. You showed it to me. I know exactly. Up to the Euphrates, down the river. I got it. Well, what does this mean? Because that's the gates of, of and What? What do you mean by that? Didn't ask the question. Faith. Faith. Okay, God, I'm not sure I completely get it, but that's great. Love it. Believe it. So I'm going to turn to the young man, as he said he would, 
They arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba, and we already you know, know that in the map, and you know where, where Beersheba is, right in the edge of the Negev. All right, uh, I want to make one brief comment, why verse 22 through 24, it seems odd, I'll, I'll talk about why that's there in a minute. Are there any final questions about chapter 22? I've, you already understand, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's certainly yes. one of the most important chapters in Genesis, but it really is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I have a, hold, hold on, Fred's going to ask a question first, then Russ, I'll get to you. Go ahead. What period is this? Can you label it? You mean a year? Well, that's what I was saying. The only way that uh, uh, can occur, the way it's stated, is in the coming Messianic kingdom of Christ. I mean, because they, they, you never see them do this. Even under David's empire, it's very limited. Never, you know, there's still lots of enemies of Israel, but this can only have its complete meaning in the coming kingdom of the Messiah. The, yes, what Revelation 20 tells us is the millennium kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So, Russ, you had, uh, the Davidic kingdom was the last kingdom. Until Christ comes. Well, the Davidic monarchy ends with the, the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. It ends. There's no more Davidic monarchy, no more no, Davidic no, no more kings. But that's right. Until, until and when Jesus shows up. That's right. Rush, you had a question. Uh, yes. Um, my question surrounds uh, uh, the certainty that you had around um, the theophany or Christophany. Uh, yes. I was, I was wondering, yes. you know, that where you grab that anchor from so I could dive into that further. Well, um, you, you have to, it isn't only here, Russ, it's throughout the Old Testament. You see right. numerous, the angels of the Lord. You see one with Gideon, you see one with Joshua as they're looking at um, taking Jericho and so on. And then when you look at the response of people to the angel of the Lord, they worship I mean, Joshua offers a sacrifice. So, you know, Russ, it seems reasonable then for us to conclude, because if this is just a normal angel, many, many times somebody will respond, I want to worship you and bow down and get up. You're not supposed to do that. You only worship God. So the angel of the Lord accepts that worship. Got it. So Gideon, it's the fact that, so, that the worship is accepted, not the terminology underneath the text. That, that's right. Got it. Now, the only, the only distinctive part of the phrase uh, the angel of the Lord is a definite article, the angel of the Lord. That is just a little grammatical piece of evidence, but you add that to everything else that is is a part of the appearances of the angel of the Lord throughout the scripture. And, you know, when you look at, um, it, look at let's look at the language of verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. The angel of the Lord is speaking, by myself I have sworn. That's a divine oath, an oath of God. So who's the angel of the Lord? It's a theophany. Because that angel, the angel of the Lord is speaking, by myself I have sworn. You follow me? Yep. Okay. So there I can find nothing higher, so I swore by myself. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Got it. Yep. Okay. Thank you. All right. Now, look, I'm not going to read all that because there's a lot of really difficult names here, but look at verse 20 through 24. It's really interesting. 
it's, it's just really interesting. At the end, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor, who's his firstborn, Buzz, etc. And then look at verse 23. Most of your translations are going to have that in parentheses. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Why in the world does Moses add this mini genealogy here? Pardon me? Because of Rebecca's role in yeah. I mean, who is Rebecca? Isaac's wife. She will become Isaac's wife. So all the text is doing is making the genealogical connection of Abraham's family way up in Haran, 500 miles to the north. By the way, Abraham, there's a lot going on up there in the family. There's a lot of people being born. Rebecca's been born. Now, I have no idea if, if, if Abraham is thinking about anything. Oh, nice. Prosperity up. That's good. Good family. But it's really important because, as you know, Abraham is going to want to find his wife or his son. And all the girls that live around where Abraham lives are what? Canaanites. Does Abraham want his covenant son to marry a Canaanite? No. <laughs> so he's going to send his servant way up to Haran, 500 and some miles to the north, find my boy a girl up there. And who does he find? Rebecca. So all the Bible does this all the time. It's in, in literature, it's called foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing. Somebody really important has been born. You're going to find out who she is and why she's important later on. But I just want to establish somebody really important has been born. So she walks onto the narrative, walks off the narrative. We'll find out more about her. But it's just fascinating how the Bible does this. And Moses, did, I mean, it's just like, well, what? What is he telling us all this for? All these unpronounceable names. It's that little key phrase right in the middle of the paragraph. Rebecca's been born. Oh, okay. Now, if that's all you had, you have no idea. But you and I know what's coming, so we know why this is important. Did I make did that make sense there? Okay. It is always God's will for me to take a sip of coffee, so don't mind when I do that. <laughs> chapter 23. What you see in, in chapter 23 here is a theme of death, but also the theme of faith. Let's read it and explain. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is what it was called in Canaan. It's Hebron. And that, you can look, and we're going to talk about that later, but if you're really interested, you can look at Hebron on that map on page 18. But anyway, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. 
But the, the text adds, in the land of Canaan. Because remember, nobody owns any land here. It's all Canaanite land. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. And Abraham rose up from his before from before his dead, meaning Sarah, and said <clears throat> to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Some translations have, you are a mighty prince among us. Now think about that for just a minute. We know nothing about these Hittites. We're going to see one of their names in a minute. But we don't know anything about them. But what are they observing about Abraham? That's a statement about Abraham. He stood out. Now they're polytheists. I mean, they worship, they worship the Baals. I mean, they're, they're polytheists. But they're saying, you stand out. You are a prince. You are a mighty prince of God. What did they mean by that? We have no idea. What's their understanding of God? We have no idea in terms of the content. These are not men of faith. But Abraham stood out. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us was hold from you, his tomb, to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham arose and bowed to Hittite's people land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is in the end of this field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. What is Abram saying? I won't take this as a gift. I want to buy it. I want a deed. And I'm going to register in the register of deeds. And I'm going to put it in my safety deposit box. I want proof that I own this land. Abraham is buying land in Canaan. The first Jew to do that because he's the father of the Jews. But that man, that is a statement of his faith. God promised me this. He promised my offspring to go as numerous as the stars of the sky, etc. And I'm going to start it. I want to buy this land. It's the cave of my, because uh, this area uh, in, in Hebron is, is very, it's part of that whole area, very rocky, very mountainous, it's limestone. And there are lots of caves, lots and lots of caves. And so what the Hittites said, you can bury Sarah in one of our caves, that's fine. No, no, no. I, I want you to go to Ephron, the son of Zohar. He has a cave of Machlev. It's the end of the field. I want to buy that. That's what I want to buy. That's where I want to bury my wife and my family. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who were at the gate of the city, of his city, there in Hebron. No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field. I will give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I'll give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron, the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. 
I don't want you to just give it to me. I want to buy it and accept it from me that I may bury my dead. Ephraim answered, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham keeps pushing. Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver he had named, and here the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So he pushes that, and he, it's, it's, man, it's impossible. If you're asking me how much is 400 shekels worth 4,000 years ago, all we know is a shekel was 11 grams. So if you kind of figure, take 11 grams of silver, go somewhere in your phone, look up the price of silver today, you can figure it out. But that's meaningless because, I mean, we have no sense. But it is interesting, isn't it? It is interesting that at the end of verse 16, according to the weights current among the merchants. So there was a standardized way of measuring things. And that's what Abraham's doing. So, and this is a very, very important transaction here. It sounds like one of those things, oh, big deal. This is really a big deal. He is buying land in Canaan. He's the first Jew to own land in the promised land. He insisted on it. So the field of Ephron in Mac, verse 17, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Marmah, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that are in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. We were all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. He now owns land in the promised land. Death leads to buying land, which leads to hope, which is the result of faith. Faith produces hope. And so this is, I mean, don't miss what's going on here. This is an expression of Abraham's faith. This is a mark of his hope and trust in God. Now, I wish we could get on a plane now. And we fly to Tel Aviv, probably fly out of Atlanta, fly to Tel Aviv, and then what we do, this would be a little arduous, but we do it, we get a, get a bus and we go all the way down to Hebron, which unfortunately right now is under the control of the Palestinian Authority, as a result of the Oslo Accords in 1973. It's a little bit unstable, but we'd still go there. And we drive up to this long, uh, well, fairly long, driveway which leads to this massive church that massive church was built by the crusaders over this cave and that is the cave that marks the burial place of abraham sarah isaac jacob joseph so all of the patriarchs are buried there and it's an incredibly important site for the christians it's an incredibly important site for the Jews. It's an incredibly important site for Muslims, because Abraham is considered their father as well, right? Because mm -hmm. he 
uh, one of his sons was Ishmael. So, I mean, it's really, it's really neat. It's, it's an incredibly large church. I mean, it's, it's quite formidable. But I, every trip I've had, I haven't always gone there because one of our, our trips, there were a bunch of Palestinian kids throwing stones at the bus. And, you know, as the tour leader, that's not a real comfortable position to be in. You know, I'm thinking of the people that are here. Oh, my goodness. So we didn't always go. It depended on how volatile things are. I don't know if you watch news much, but if there's any volatility in Israel. Hebron is often where you see some riots and Palestinian uprisings and things like that. And then some real tragic um, killings there, too. But anyway, I'm telling you more than you probably want to know. But this is really, really important. Okay. All right. Any no questions? I'm going to move on then. But yeah, I, yeah question. Um, so yeah. Is, is what drove him for the purchase that he wanted no encumbrances? He want he wanted full, clear right and title to the property. Is that why? That's exactly right. Okay. I mean, you know, Glenn, this is this is such a decisive act on the part of Abraham, but. In the ancient world, really, even like today, I suppose you could say, but in the ancient world, it was it was easy to get into a situation where you have been tricked. You know, there had been some conniving on the other party. Abraham wants to make sure that there's none of that. It is a clear-cut deal. And he's got a deed. I'm using kind of the way we talk about it. He's got a clear deed. Everybody knows he owns it. This was done at the gatehouse of the city, which is all the, where all the business of the city is done. And there are a lot of witnesses to it. You've seen that. Tell us about the witnesses. They're all Hittite witnesses. But they witness this transaction. And they watch him count out the 400 shekels. They watch Ephron take this and give him, in effect, the deed. No encumbrances. There are no liens on this property. This is fair and square Abraham. And that is, this is an incredible statement of faith, but it also gives some indication of how, how Abraham and his descendants look at this is the first piece of land we own in Canaan. The promised land, the promised land, if, let me put it this way, the promised land has started. We now have a little tiny chunk at the end of a field near Mamre, Hebron. Used to be owned by Ephraim. Now it's owned by Abraham. He's got full deed and title to it. Is there any correlation to this? And like when David buys the threshing floor of Aruna or whatever, because he also offered yeah. it to yeah. take it. It's yours. Yeah. And he said, "No, I'm going to buy it." No, that's it, I, there is a real parallel here that he is he David wants to be absolutely certain that that land is the land in which the temple. No liens, no encumbrances, no question. I have purchased it. And that deed was placed into the deposit box of the first National Bank of Jerusalem. <laughs> oh, no, that's a parallel. It's very important. I'm sorry? Abraham's got his foot in the door there. He's got part of the promised land, right? He does, absolutely. He got his foot in the door, and his kids are going to really take it. All right, now it's just about a quarter of, but I want to introduce chapter 24. And I want to introduce chapter 24 with the word that you all know, you all can spell it, and you all can pronounce it correctly. It's chesed. Remember that? Loyal covenant love of God. 
So what we're going to we'll do this next week. We'll introduce. I got about a minute. I'm going to use it. What this passage is all about in chapter 24 is Abraham is old, and the the passion of his life now is to get his son's wife, but he doesn't want her to marry a Canaanite. And so that loyal covenant love of God and his covenant promises to Abraham are worked out in how Abraham's servant finds Rebekah. And it's, it's an amazing story of Abraham's trust and God's providence. You remember what providence means. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but he providentially intervenes to accomplish his purposes. And here you see it. It's an amazing story. You, you can conclude, well, it's just a coincidence that Eliezer sees this. No, no, it's not a coincidence. God's got this whole thing set up. And so you just see God is working this plan, which is necessary for Isaac to get a, a wife who will produce another covenant son. But that's going to set up another dilemma, which we'll talk about later, because she actually has two. She's pregnant with twins, and that's a whole other story. We'll get to that later on. So next week, we'll pick up with chapter 24, and the theme of that is chesed. It's guttural. Pronounce it correctly, chesed. And I will ask you to pronounce it in class tomorrow out loud. All right, I'm going to pray and let you go because it's a little bit past time. Father, thank you for the faith of Abraham. Uh, it's an extraordinary story of faith. Every time I've studied uh, chapter 22, I, I am just absolutely amazed at the faith, the confident trust of Abraham in his God. He really trusted you, Lord. He believed what you had said. He believed what you had promised. And he even believed that if he would take the son, his son's life, that you would resurrect him. You would bring him back to life. The language of the text is clear on that. And you even have tremendous affirmation in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, I think it is. So, Lord, he is an example of faith for us. We Give us, Lord, that capacity to trust you. Give us that capacity to walk in faith, a vibrant, robust faith with you, because you are a good God. And from the perspective of eternity, you always have our best interest at heart. We trust you with these things. Help us to be men of strong faith, who are the salt and light, who represent you in this really quite dark world right now. And in that, we put our faith. It's not always going to be like this. We're waiting for the return of our Savior as he sets up his kingdom, and we rule and reign with him. That's what you've promised. We look forward to that. So we commit the rest of the day to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.